It is now my great pleasure to introduce today's Digital Dialogue speaker, um, a MIT's former assistant director, among many other um, distinctions and <laughs> professional uh, occupations, um, and a dear friend of mine, um, Dr. Jennifer Giuliano. Uh, Dr. Giuliano is a white academic living and working on the lands of the Miami Pokagon Band of Potawatomi, Wea and Shawnee peoples. She currently holds a position as associate professor in the Department of History and affiliated faculty in both Native American and Indigenous Studies and American Studies at Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis, IUPUI in Indiana. Um, she is an award-winning teacher and scholar. Um, her monograph, Indian Spectacle, College Mascots and the Anxiety of Modern America, traces the appropriation, production, dissemination, and legalization of Native American images as sports mascots in the late 19th and 20th centuries. And she is also, this is very exciting, completing a co-authored work, Getting Started in the Digital Humanities, and a primer for teaching digital history. Um, so look for those coming soon. Uh, she taught me most of everything I know about digital humanities, and it is a great honor to have her back at Myth to talk about her own research. Um, please join me in welcoming Jen Julianne. Trevor obviously took a knock to the head earlier today and is over overstating everything. Uh, good afternoon. Um, I'd like to thank Purdom and Trevor and the whole MIST staff for hosting me today. Um, I'm going to be presenting a paper that I've co-authored with Carolyn Heitman at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Um, if you don't know Carrie Heitman's work, she is a fabulous cultural anthropologist who has been working in the Chaco Canyon uh, Heritage Research Project for about the last 12 or 13 years, I think. Um, and is leading a lot of the work that's going on with digitization uh, and the Hopi peoples. Um, her work is incredible. She has a new manifold project. I encourage you to check it out. Um, I want to mention that this presentation is available in full written form uh, through the Journal of Cultural Analytics. So if you're interested in citational politics, all of the citations to the things I'm going to be talking about are in the paper. Uh, as well, there's a link on the front of the slide to go.iu.edu. You can download all of the slides you're going to see today. Um, so if that will help you make sense of what I'm going to talk about, uh, please do so um, at your leisure. For humanists, the cultural complexities of data and information are not new. Anthropologists, historians, linguists, museum curators, and archivists have long probed the contextual subjectivities of knowledge production and representation. From ink and quill maps representing the new world to the carefully stratified layers of an archaeological site, Data and the humanities are always subject to the systems of knowledge that we're used to capture, represent, and disseminate them. Understanding their acquisition, analysis, and interpretation in order to transform data into meaning is a requirement to truly understand what data is and how it is useful. Our contemporary data culture, as it is often taught to humanists, encourages scholars to perceive, to perceive data as something discoverable that can be shaped, challenged, corrected, and built upon. The humanities, social sciences, and the physical science embrace a data culture that takes as its starting point the notion that data and knowledge should proliferate and circulate widely for the public good. For scholars working in Native American and indigenous communities, as well as First Nations in Canada, as well as other minority communities around the world, data can be dangerous. Data, can have be, data has been used to promote policies of genocide, to inflict trauma, and to fragment communities, all of which have had far-reaching consequences across generation. In this presentation, I highlight how theories of difficult cultural heritage and survivance trouble the dominant normative data culture within which most humanities and digital humanities researchers operate. Difficult heritage, 
serves as a useful construct for exploring the aggregation of cultural records relating to colonialism and its impact on native peoples. It reconciles concerns with documenting the past with the need to confront the genocidal practices from which most of these records result. In this presentation, I identify how current trends in data consumption and representation by non-native scholars working with Native American and indigenous cultural data have led to conf continued infringements on Native American sovereignty. Uh, and that's going to be sort of a core in this whole presentation is this notion of how non-native researchers have really continued to participate in the process of colonization and inflicting harm on indigenous communities. As I open our consideration of indigenous data cultures, it's important to begin by noting the parameters of the presentation. I'm speaking specifically about the US context of digital humanities, indigeneity, and data culture. The focus of this presentation is how US institutions and scholars have grappled with indigeneity as a consumptive activity. Indigenous communities are, as Jose Martinez Cobo uh, reminded us in, in 1986, determined to preserve, develop, and transmit to future generations their ancestral territories and their ethnic identity as the basis for their continued existence as peoples in accordance with their own cultural patterns, social institutions, and legal systems. That determination is ever more important for digital humanists to support in the face of what we see as contemporary challenges to indigenous sovereignty here in the US. I am, of course, speaking not only to communities that are challenging oil pipelines and water rights and even artists' rights, but also indigenous communities who are challenging the destruction of their communal lands in the face of aggressive US governmental policies that wish to shrink their reservations and their traditional hunting grounds. So if you're not aware, um, the, the courts this week just previously decided not to shrink the Bears Ears National Monument as a result of tribal uh, sort of assertions that that's a traditional land for them, um, which is a, a fabulous, like finally the, the courts like did something right, <laughs> which is just lovely. Um, Native American and indigenous scholars have widely documented the effects of colonialism as violent and virulent practices that have led to widespread disease, genocide, trauma, and displacement. So two of they documented how governmental efforts to expand throughout the American continent relied heavily on physical death and the cultural destruction of indigenous peoples. Just as damaging, though, were early 20th century preservation efforts by non-indigenous peoples. From the removal of important religious and political items to non-indigenous control, to the recording of sacred cultural and religious rituals, indigenous identities have been threatened by the continuous requirement to negotiate colonialism in both its historical and contemporary consequence. The histories of genocide, colonialism, and plunder in pursuit of nation formation and knowledge preservation have to be carefully contextualized and situated within Native American and indigenous data cultures. The powerful motivation for generational knowledge transmission and protection that Native peoples have is a direct result of the centuries of colonial impact. A hallmark of this is the process was the production and dissemination of knowledge about indigenous peoples through the journal and records of colonizers. The reports of the government by Christopher Columbus, the logs of explorations by French traders and missionaries, territorial government reports uh, about conflicts with indigenous peoples, and even anthropologists who visited communities to document their supposedly disappearing uh, culture all of these things contributed to the perception that indigenous identities in America are disappearing or have disappeared entirely. These are the data cultures that historians and other scholars work with. This is colonial-centric data. So what we mean by colonial-centric data is data that has been collected in the process of nation formation that is held by non-indigenous peoples, supposedly for the benefit of public good. Um, and that's one of the things that sort of this work interrogates is, 
who's public and who's good. So let me illustrate this with, with an example to sort of show how this works in our sort of theorization. Antoinette Burton, Jane Anderson, Michelle Caswell, and others have drawn attention not just to the politics of collecting and archival practice, but to the research implications caused by a lack of access to historical records about women, people of color, and other minority groups within the colonial process. Archives and the collections they hold for these researchers are clearly politicized spaces of representation and memory. And most significantly, their humanities research is as much about the recovery of these historical traces as it is about the final products of their scholarship. So this is the extension of the cultural turn um, for scholars is to say, like, we're not just here to sort of recover the past. We're also here to talk about how our recovery is, in fact, a privileging of certain narratives. Embedded within this task of recovery is a parallel language that is often used about archival research, discovery. Uh, and this is a popular meme if you haven't been paying attention the last few weeks on Twitter, the Columbusing meme. So Columbusing is going where no one has gone before. Um, well, but yeah, anyway, Columbusing. So uh, in a future iteration of this paper, we're just going to like supplant the word discovery with Columbusing and see how many people <laughs> understand the meme. Uh, for Burton, Caswell, and others, discovery served to not only affirm perceptions that these artifacts and traces were unknown to their communities of origin, but also that the process of analyzing these traces were positivistic in nature. In other words, discovery assumes something has been lost and needs to be refound, but also that in finding, you're actually doing something good. Historic collectors who amassed analog archival collections about Native American indigenous peoples were often did the same thing. They were concerned with salvage ethnography to document disappearing peoples. They embarked on decades-long collecting efforts that led to the extraction, forcibly or otherwise, of cultural objects, knowledge, and even physical bodies from Native communities throughout the US. From curiosity cabinets to the collections that became the foundations of the Smithsonian Museum complex, collecting Indianness has led to the removal of Native culture from its community of origin to non-Indigenous institutions. Much of the rhetoric of archival motivation and action here, or the actions of recovery and discovery, which most scholars use, has been replicated in these colonial-centric collections, which we discuss in detail in this presentation. This, the data about indigenous peoples held by non-indigenous collecting institutions, universities, the government, and the like, is the subject of concern. It is only one type of indigenous data culture, but it is defined by the process of, quote, collecting data about indigenous peoples in the process of colonialism. And here we date this between 1500 and 1924. So 1924 is the date of citizenship for native peoples, which confers upon them a set of rights that they didn't have previously within the legal system. So we're really interested in sort of a 420 year span of data. Um, and all of that data was collected with the express purpose of preserving these supposedly disappearing peoples. To simply replicate such archives in a digital space without considerations of indigenous data culture serves to replicate the ills of colonialism. For early 20th century anthropologists, historians, linguists, and the like, they stripped indigenous peoples of their heritage for the betterment and knowledge of non-native peoples. This happened at the same moment as the US government instituted policies of forced migration, assimilation, and the devaluation of tribal lands and sovereignty. These activities in parallel taking away of culture and instituting requirements about assimilation are the foundations upon which colonial-centric data culture has been built. As an aside, also the law. 
has been built at that same moment about how indigenous people are dealt with. So let's give you some examples of how this works in the digital space. So this is Edward Curtis. Uh, anybody familiar with Edward Curtis's work? Yes, Edward Curtis is a lovely man uh, with lots of interesting politics at play. Beginning in 1868, Edward Curtis embarked on a 30-year career documenting 80 native communities. Participating as part of scientific expeditions and anthropological excursions, he produced roughly 20 volumes of information on native and indigenous life that were accompanied by photographic images as part of his North American Indian series. Created as silver gelatin photographic prints, the series has long held a place of prominence in historical analysis, as the images are not only noted for their rarity, but also for their limited dissemination and reuse throughout the 20th century as complete volumes of photographic work. Only 300 sets of the 20 volume series were sold. As individual objects, however, these images have seen significant dissemination and reuse since their acquisition by the Library of Congress. The collection includes individual and group portraits, as well as photographs of housing, occupation, arts and crafts, religious and ceremonial rites, and social rituals, meals, dancing, games, etc. More than 1,000 of the photographs from the 20 volumes have been digitized and are individually described and available through the Library of Congress API, as well as via manual download in both JPEG and TIFF file formats. They circulate through various mediums like Northwestern University's digital library collection of the volume, as well as search engine aggregators like Google and Bing. To curate his desired representations of Native American peoples, Curtis sometimes deliberately modified the images he produced to remove signs of modernity in contemporary life. This included providing specific forms of dress that were perceived as being more traditional, as well as stronger interventionist strategies like removing objects that would signal integration with 20th century Euro-American society. When viewing an image of a Pagan um, Pilanki people of the Blackfoot Confederacy, uh, this is their lodge that is part of the Library of Congress collection and the volumes. The unretouched Curtis negative is provided to the API as an image of three Pagan peoples in their lodge. And you can see in the center of the photograph, there is a modern clock sort of situated. By contrast, the retouched image that audiences themselves would have viewed in the original printed volumes did not contain the clock. Curtis physically cut the silver gelatin negatives to remove the clock from the image. For the purposes of accuracy and context then, it's important for a complete data representation of this particular image to reflect not just the original photograph with the clock, but also the relational data to what was actually published by Curtis. In other words, we need to merge the unretouched negatives with the retouched negatives that were used in the printed volumes to create a complete interpretive moment for researchers. Without this context, researchers might conclude that Euro-Americans were familiar with signs of modernity and indigenous life when, in fact, that conclusion is relatively recent historiographically. So Phil Deloria, a few years ago, published a fabulous book on Indians and modernity. And one of the steps forward he made historiographically was to systematically show how photographers participated in removing signs of modernity from native life and, and sort of public circulation. So it wasn't just clocks. It included cars. It included um, cutting out trains, like literally like removing backgrounds of images. Uh, and that's a relatively recent historiographical conclusion that scholars have reached. But if you look at the API or you look at the Library of Congress site, you would have no clue that what most people saw was this retouched negative. In a similar case, Curtis depicted a war party, a Crow War parties in particular, on horses, even though there had been no Crow War parties for years. 
He used techniques of focus and duration to induce hue and saturation that romanticize these images. These examples from Curtis' works demonstrate that some of the challenges surrounding how colonial-centric data operate, in this case digital derivatives of photographic images, circulate and how they've been historically manipulated. Such cases require additional historic and interpretive context, lest they continue to magnify the colonial gaze. This Curtis collection, among many others, also contains many culturally sensitive images. His images of the Hopi snake dance ceremonies uh, from various villages is a similar set of challenges. The photographs depict Hopi members at the snake and antelope societies participating in a communal ceremony, performed in August to ensure abundant rainfall and to help, uh, sorry, uh, performed in August to ensure abundant rainfall to help corn growth, the ritual was most widely photographed ceremony in the southwestern Pueblos by non-native observers. And in fact, um, tourism companies from St. Louis, Chicago, and the East used to run trains all the way out to the Hopi villages as part of this Eastern excursion, <laughs> where the entire goal of the train was to witness one of these culturally sensitive ceremonies. On the Library of Congress website, there's no notation that these images are of a religious ritual that is now prohibited from viewing by the non-Hopi public, and thus should be pulled from view for reasons of cultural sensitivity. And this is one of the key conflicts that we've noted, is that as tribes change their notions of what they would like non-Indigenous people to have access to, the colonial institutions are so much slower to implement those changes. So you can still go to the Library of Congress website and view a religious ritual from a community that no longer wants people to be able to view that. So what does that mean for us? The advent of digital aggregation, particularly digital data aggregation, linked open data and computer vision techniques raise additional concerns with regard to the reuse and circulation of Native American indigenous data. Machine learning processes used to classify and categorize digital images rely on the segmentation of, of patterns. This can include the physical segmentation of bodies of Native peoples, e.g. we only see a face or a head or an arm. This is a form of violence that mirrors colonial practices where natives were treated as less than human through their own segmented representation. E.g., the government put out a call for scalps and severed limbs to prove that you'd killed an Indian. What's more, these computational processes further de decontextualize and reappropriate these se culturally sensitive images of people, places, and practices by further divorcing them from their originary community. So in this case, what you're looking at here this is um, an image of crows who've been dismembered and scalped. Um, and this is a free and open use public photograph available from Wikimedia Commons as public domains. And what I've blacked out for you are the bodies. So what does it mean that our students or others are able to sort of see these images with no context to what it means to see a body or to see a body part? Um, and the parallel that I like to draw, <laughs> draw for people that's kind of horrifying is, uh, what if this is your family? And that's the photo that's used to illustrate the period or what's going on. So for us, we ask a few questions. How might the concept of heritage better help us address a dominant normative data culture that is steeped in colonialism? Having a heritage, a body of selected history and its material traces, writes cultural anthropologist Sharon McDonald, is an integral part of having an identity. It affirms the right to exist in the present and to continue into the future. An indigenous-centric data culture is one that is relying upon a heritage that's built on the preservation, development, and transmission of knowledge as tied to the continued existence of native peoples. From here, an indigenous critical theory perspective, Jody Bird argues that an indigenous-centric space 
is one that centers indigenous epistemologies and the specificities of community and culture from which it emerges and then looks outward to engage with European philosophy, legal history, and cultural traditions. So what does this mean for us? An indigenous-centric data culture, then, is one that is built entirely on native ways of knowing, representing, preserving, and sharing before it engages with European systems. So here's an example to illustrate this indigenous epistemological framework. Sioux peoples created a winter count. This is a pictographic representation of the most important moment in the community that served as a mnemonic device to assist the tribe storykeeper in remembering the past. Lone Dog's Winter Count, which is the image on the screen, uh, is a buffalo hide that records the period from winter 1800 to winter 1871. At the close of each winter, the male elders of the tribe would gather to select the most important event a year, of the year. Once selected, it would then be immortalized as a pictograph by the artist in the community that served as historian and storykeeper. The buffalo hide artifact, titled Winter Count Recording Events from 1800 to 1870, by the Smithsonian's National Museum of the American Indian is recorded in parallel as Lone Dog's Winter Count. So what you're looking at is um, each of the images on the screen, basically from the center outward, go year by year from 1800 all the way to the last image in 1871. Uh, so the Smithsonian sort of treats this as um, a singular object, and that's going to be one of the things that we're going to sort of unpack for you um, in this sort of framing of how indigenous knowledge changes our interpretation of the artifact. While Lone Dog was the last keeper to complete his pictograph in 1871, we know that some of the pictographs were actually inherited by Shankala Isnala, which is Lone Dog's uh, actual Sioux name. Uh, he was born after the first pictograph was recorded. So this is how we know it's an inherited object and not an object done retroactively, is that he actually added to something after or before he, it was created before he was born. He added to it after um, these events had occurred. An indigenous-centric representation of this particular artifact would then need to account not for circa 1870, which is the date that the Smithsonian gives it, but instead to provide a date range of 1800 to 1871 as each individual pictograph was authored at the end of that winter season. More simply, in a colonial-centric data schema, what's important is that completed buffalo hide that you see. For us, though, what is actually more interesting are the individual images and the authors of the individual pictographs. Thus, each individual pictograph should actually be its own singular data representation tied to an anonymous author from the tribe. Thus, the 33rd pictograph, which is the one that looks like a little moon with some red dots around it, actually should be labeled as unknown artist, Yanktonai Band of the Great Sioux Nation, the stars fell 1833 with the information about the museum, compiled by Lone Dog circa 1870. This pictograph, by the way, is of the great Leonid meteor showers. And this is a real sea change in thinking about how the data is represented, right? The museum treats it as a curatorial object, which means which means that it's a singular piece of material. But if you actually speak and talk to the tribe and the community, this is not a singular artifact. This is actually a compilation in the same way an edited collection of a book would be, or um, a collection, an archival collection is. So this is a real sea change for how we think about things if we center the indigenous way of knowing about their own information rather than the tribe. 
While it may seem trivial to refine the metadata in this way, what it in fact demonstrates is the complicated nature of indigenous data that's been collected by non-indigenous institutions. Lone Dog's winter count is not a singular piece of data, rather it's a plurality of data points that the museum elected to represent as a singular artifact. Colonial-centric heritage collections can provide opportunities for indigenous peoples to recover and reassess aspects of their heritage, and, as MacDonald tells us, to reaffirm their right to exist in the present and into the future. Working on the Common Ground Ho-Chunk exhibit for the Minnesota Historical Society, uh, scholar Amy Lone Tree describes her first encounter with the physical photographs of her ancestors. Boxes organized by anglicized family name were brought to her at the table. She, visibly, she vividly describes the affective experience of holding and leafing through the images of her ancestors and using those images as catalysts for memory activities with her grandparents. Following on the work of Gerald Visner on survivance, where he argues that Native peoples have an active and enduring engagement with their own historical absences, Lone Tree writes, knowing our history through the lives of our ancestors opens a recovery process that is central to addressing the legacies of historical unresolved grief that persist in our communities. Though these are journeys into our past, we can reclaim our history for the current and future generations of the Ho-Chunk people. For me, this quote reflects the generative capacity of heritage, but it also points to the cultural, political, social, and religious impacts of colonial-centric collections. Lone Tree's access to her ancestors' images was, not, uh, was in fact a product of colonial practices facilitated by the photographer Charles Van Shyack and the Wisconsin Historical Society. Had they not collected the images in the first place, Amy would have never been able to experience it today. And her collection to these images was not manifested, though, through her co-chunk language, but instead with English epistemologies of metadata and accessioning. In other words, part of what Amy sort of really struggles with is, you know, her access point to her own family and to her own language and to her own heritage is in boxes and file folders. It's not in her grandparents' kitchen. It's not, you know, sort of in the communal day of the Ho-Chunk people where they're sharing stories. It's in an archive in a, in a historical society with nine to five Monday through Friday hours, and you have to, like, petition for the rights to see your own stuff. And I think that's part of what this argument is, is sort of really trying to struggle with is, you know, if we know that there is actual affective memory, that touching things, smelling things, seeing things, experiencing things, you know, really are where our history is made, what does it mean that much of our history has been sterilized and placed in boxes for our approval? Items collected through forms of native portraiture, treaty documents, ethnographic descriptions, and historical documents are entangled in what McDonald has called difficult heritage. It's a term that she coined in reference to the Nazi past at Nuremberg, but which can be extended to our considerations of settler colonialism and the genocide and displacement of Native Americans. McDonald defines difficult heritage as a past that is recognized as meaningful in the present, but that is also contested and awkward for public reconciliation with a positive self-affirming contemporary identity. Difficult heritage may be troublesome because it threatens to break into the present in disruptive ways, opening up social divisions. Depending on the particular heritage frame, online collections and archives also run the effect of this heritage effect and what others have called the museum effect, a form of commemoration and museumification that valorizes, instantiates, or in some cases substantiates colonial ideologies as well as, well as racial and ethnic inequalities. Regarding, regardless of the surrounding exegesis and context, the presentation of colonial artifacts is usually perceived positively or as a treasured representation. 
These are collections to be proud of rather than to confront. These presentations can often mimic early anthropological discourse, which sought to preserve a static Indian identity that was disappearing from the cultural record. This, as Visner and others tells us, is the continued trauma of colonialism, which encourages non-indigenous peoples to be enamored with false and limited representation of natives and their heritage. With the exception of the Mukutu Content Management System and the Great Lakes Research Alliance for the Study of Aboriginal Arts and Cultures, US-based digital humanities researchers and developers have largely been absent from this conversation. This is even as access to and the preservation of indigenous cultural heritage are vital concerns for those working in diverse disciplines, including history, anthropology, literature, linguistics, media studies, museum studies, and archival studies. Indigenous-centric data cultures challenges the supposed neutrality of humanities data and the preference for open access by arguing that data collected by colonizing institutions should be treated differently than other forms of data made available through open access policies. So everything I've shown you today is available through an open access policy. There are no rights and reproduction costs on it. Download it for free, either yourself or through an API. You don't have to pay anyone, notify anyone, talk to anyone. You can just run out on the internet and get some native data for your own use. Following the work of Christian, in this case Kimberly Christian with the, this work suggests that the rhetoric and practice of the open access data movement obscures Native American indigenous agency and the sovereignty they have in determining the use of their own materials. This open access rhetoric dissociates Native communities from the process of consultation and debate. The question of providing access to this data is not just a deployment of an ecosystem for development, description, access, and reuse, but a recognition that there are potentially multiple ecosystems that need to, be, that need to exist related to the data, and that they have to exist simultaneously and be treated as part of a non-homogenous whole. More simply, the language and culture and the data of the Piscataway peoples, which is on whose land we stand, is not the same as the Choctaw peoples, or the Miami, or the Pokagon, and that each community would need its own data ecosystem to represent its own epistemology. Each data culture, then, would be different. Research and teaching in and with indigenous communities and their data is part of a much larger web of native systems that include tradition and kinship, politics and economy, cultural responsibility, individual and communal roles, etc. These diverse systems and worldview inform community activities of how an individual relates to one another and how the community places itself in conversation with its allies. Data, then, is an expression of those systems and worldviews and must be recognized as intrinsically tied to how the community defines itself. Um, and this is one of the most problematic things, I think, for me as a digital humanist, which is indigenous data exists untethered from the communities that created it or that, are, it, that it's about. In an indigenous-centric epistemology, data and heritage do not exist as something separate from the community. It can only be accessed, shared, amended, and remembered by community members in their specific cultural roles. There are general ethical and epistemological issues we have to be attentive to, then, when exposing these historical materials that are authored by or about Native Americans. First and foremost, there is an issue of identity politics. Who has the right to speak for and about, about whom, and what role should non-members play in articulating histories and authorities of communities? In other words, the parallel I like to give my students is just because mom has said yes to something doesn't mean dad has said yes to something, and you have to have both mom and dad in agreement. Now imagine that at scale, right? When you have tribes that have been displaced across the United States, for example, 
Uh, in Indiana, we have a Miami Band of Indiana, which are Indians who uh, received an allotment in the state of Indiana during removal and were able to keep it because they were uh, commercial vendors and purveyors. They, they ran this fabulous sort of way station for the US government. They are very separate from and different than the Miami Band of Oklahoma. And yet, if you're writing about the Miami peoples, you need to have both on board. So what does this mean if we say part of our process of identification is that you have to confront various communities where they are and not just what's easy? So what does this mean for us as researchers? A researcher might need to navigate permissions for use of data by institutions holding the material. The family, the clan, those with interest in the materials, a tribal cultural heritage officer charged with preserving the tribe's history, a tribe's governing authority, all might have to be part of the research process. In a colonial-centric collection, though, only the first step is required. Do you have the legal right to use the data? And open access says, almost always, everyone gets the data no matter what. What does this mean if we thought about other steps? What would it mean for researchers to have to discuss the use of lone dogs winter count with the Yankton Eye winter count community? These are descendants of those who created those pictographs. It would likely not only assist in their understanding of the images, but it also might introduce issues of trouble into their interpretation. The Yankton Eye winter count community may have interpretations that unsettle researchers' conclusions. Most scholars do not understand these layered and interwoven interests. Instead, they assume permission or support by a single individual or body as representative of all stakeholders. Every community, every tribe, and even every single family member might differ in their sense of what is appropriate for reuse and dissemination of research data. Hence, there's no expedient or universal solution. Instead, research in indigenous contexts often involves the development of relationships over an extended period of time. In some cases, it might also involve abandoning an entire digital project because the community is not in agreement about its desire or need for the specific project or about the right to circulate its data. And here we're going to pivot a little bit to talk about where archivists fit into this mix. Within the archival community, the recent adoption in October uh, 2018 by the, the SAA of the Protocols for Native American Archival Materials marks a significant moment for those working in indigenous data cultures. It relied on 12 years of work by members of the Native American Archives section to encourage the recognition of what Native peoples are calling sovereign political entities that deserve consultation and consideration when it comes to collections held by non-Indigenous institutions. For the purposes of our exploration, it's worth highlighting how SAA frames the challenges of colonial-centric data about Indigenous people, and they do so in parallel to language about classified and restricted data. And this is a real step forward that we're seeing, is to think that colonial-centric data should be treated as sensitively as state secret data. That's a pretty impressive movement. What this suggests, and this is a quote from a very long quote that you can read on your own um, from the, the writings of the protocols themselves. What this suggests is that there's a more systemic approach to traditional knowledge labels that are employed by Mercutus and other uh, sort of digital projects that allow individual items and collections to be withheld from view not just by members of that public, but also to members of the originating community who might not be of appropriate clan, stature, gender, or position. In other words, classified and restricted colonial-centric data might actually be more in line with being able to make changes across the United States, rather than having to negotiate individually, communally, by community. These protocols, then, have the potential to reshape the ethical work with indigenous data, by allowing us to posit a series of questions at the intersection of computational access and indigenous data. 
How does the descendant of an individual photographed by early anthropologists find images of their ancestors if the metadata is sparse or does not align to their own indigenous ways of knowing? How do researchers ret retrieve previously available digital materials from a collection that now might be embargoed by a community? How would a researcher be contacted by a holding institution to remove a digital artifact from their published and complete project because of community concerns? This, by the way, is one of the evils of digital humanities, is lots of digital projects that exist that don't tell you how to protest what someone has done in their project or who to even, like not even an email address to complain. Um, I ran a workshop a few years ago with a group of indigenous scholars on this particular topic. Um, and we began tweeting at the New York Public Library and other institutions about some of the data that they were making available through social media streams. And one of the things that we found was no one could figure out how to identify who was responsible for the data at New York Public Library. Um, and of course, they ignored our tweets, right? They, they ignored our, our questions and concerns. These sorts of questions are just preliminarily, um, and these are informed by a lot of what the work that Ricky Puntland and others are doing. Um, you know, what does it mean that we have to begin to grapple with the notion that data is free and unfettered, but also that computers don't have sensitivity to concerns of communities? Colonial-centric collections of native data have largely been able to avoid these considerations because they're not perceived as being tied to contemporary peoples. As such, when you go to the Library of Congress or elsewhere, these are part of history collections and not contemporary collections. They're also considered part of the common good mission of the archive, library, and museum. We can revise the metadata associated with these documents, particularly the photographic documents, which really need it, but we need to revise them in light of trying to illustrate ties to contemporary peoples. But that process requires significant negotiation with US governmental agencies and archives who maintain the records. So the National Archives and the Library of Congress, um, it's only been in the last few years, have begun working directly with tribes for the tribes to come in and evaluate the data and make changes to the metadata. And part of what's been really interesting is that's all unpaid work. That's all work that the community is donating back to the federal government to improve what people know about them. So what does it say that we don't prioritize that as actual labor and actual work? It's important to pause here to note that the difficulty of thinking through these sorts of digital indigenous data cultures is sort of backwards because non-native data structures are the ones that continue to frame both analog and digital records. Archives and collections like those at the Library of Congress and elsewhere were built upon colonial collecting practices and retain the established structure of a collection even as records are digitized and disseminated through new mediums. In other words, it's always about the box, the file folder, and the provenance, not about the community's uh, interpretation. Concerns about reproducing colonized archives and colonial-centric data are heightened for me when the historical record turns digital. Digital assets, including digital archives exposed via the web, are exposed to what uh, anthropologist Michael Welsh has called the endless remix. While images and documents may be carefully contextualized within a given web-based project domain or a project that an academic has written, the images and the documents themselves are susceptible to infinite and unanticipated refraction. They are endlessly remixed on the internet, including endlessly misused. There can be no doubt that this refractive process of digital reproduction and sampling has a profound democratizing potential under the aegis of open access. In other words, you don't know if it exists unless it's available online. But images and documents that depict historical trauma 
are problematic. They can be used to educate people about uh, issues of trauma in the community. They can empower social justice movements. Heritage items, though, are not passive entities. Our art and art history anthropology and museology colleagues have long contended with the repressive and active dimensions of reproduction, which transform such objects into objects of political speech, including white supremacy. So uh, a few months ago, there's a, a nice white lady, and I put that in quotes, a nice white lady, who decided that it'd be great for her business to launch the Squaw, which is apparently the name of her business. And part of what she did was she pulled beadwork and, and other images from Native communities and began to mass produce clothing based on those cultural sort of patrimony um, of, this, of this work. And when everybody started finding out about it, her rhetoric of this was, well, I got it from these images that are online, like, so nobody owns those. So like, I haven't done anything wrong. And I think this is part of what the question is about the internet and about making images like these available, which is we don't know and cannot anticipate what people are going to be doing with them. And we're seeing this more and more in the medieval studies end of the spectrum, where there's lots of conversation about when things are digitized and made available, how white supremacists and others are then weaponizing those images and those, those uh, icons uh, for their own purposes and use. This is the risk, by the way, of open access. Open access allows for objects to be divorced from their conditions of production and context of interpretation for all forms of reuse. Johanna Sassoon argues that digital translation is a cultural process that is driven by market forces in a political arena and not simply a technological transposition. And this, by the way, is something that I would love for more people to be talking about is that digitization is driven not by sort of the positive of using the technology and trying something out, but it's about people's ability to turn around and, and market that and, and serve that and, and have it be a service that someone can buy into. Mass media and consumption has conditioned us to apprehend the surface of digital images, not to read them. To combat a growing tendency to view images this way and to push back against the potential violence such decontextualized superficial readings can do in these difficult cultural heritage contexts, Joan Swartz argues we must learn to read images and digital, and digital artifacts like documents. This requires that we recognize that photographs, like maps, are linked to exercises of government and business, and ask how they function as a silent arbiter of power. How do they express an embedded social vision, and how do they operate on the sly rhetoric of neutrality? In a slightly different, different vein, Seminole Muskie Navajo photographer Hulea Tinishwani points out that one cannot understand images of Native Americans until you understand their history. Crow Creek Sioux essayist Elizabeth Cook Lynn reminds us in American history, quote, the white individual is at the center and the native is a mere prop, unquote. The notion of native peoples as prop or as an object upon which history and historical actors elides the agency of native peoples within their own history. If we return to our question of erroneous and problematic metadata, how do we go about correcting an object that's been remixed and reused? There's currently no automated way to identify incorrect data and to change it throughout the internet. And in fact, I've been having this argument with a colleague who's part of Collections as Data, that when machines are the ones doing the collecting and the data work, how do you tell the machine to go get something and bring it back? There's no way to close the loop computationally now. We can get data out, but getting the corrected data back in is a real challenge. Each individual instance of the use of the asset then has to be tracked and modified. So we do this with DOIs for the internet. We don't provide a DOI to an object, though. So 
how do we then think about uniqueness in how this is framed? Given that many digital assets about indigenous people serve as illustrative fodder for analog and digital works rather than actual topics or things to be analyzed, the potential to positively amend the historical record can seem quite impossible. Lone Dog's Winter Count, for example, that we talked about earlier is one such artifact. Digital images of, of it abound via search engine. It's been embedded within the Smithsonian's educational resources. Um, the catalog record exists. Um, you can find it pretty much all over the place. What's interesting, though, to access Lone Dog's Winter Count, you actually have to go through Smithsonian's interface to get all of the corrected metadata. So when you see it unmoored from the Smithsonian context, you get none of the metadata and none of the context of how to interpret what you're seeing. And this is a real problem because, as we know, most people are not going to the Smithsonian's interface to get Lone Dog's Winter Count. Most people, when they're doing their work, plug this into Google or Bing, and then they treat this as the authoritative data. So let's turn it a little more into digital humanities as our final case. This is the Performing Archive, Curtis and the Vanishing Race Scalar project. This was developed in 2013 by Jacqueline Warnemont, who was formerly at uh, Arizona State University and is now at Dartmouth. Heather Blackmore, David Kim, Ulia Popova, uh, and uh, Beatrice Schuster and Amy Borsak, who were undergraduate Mellon Fellows at Scripps College. Uh, the way the project is proposed, it's a, it's a robust consideration of the relationships of historical and emerging scholarly and archival technologies with histories of race and national identities. Performing Archive was, quote, a pilot that would offer the Claremont College community a working model of not only how to collaborate within the consortium, but within regional R1 level institutions as well. Funded by the Mellon Foundation, Performing Archive was a digital space to explore one of the less than 300 complete volumes we talked about at the beginning of this presentation. The authors explain, because we were using existing digital collections, we were able to focus on the development of interfaces, visualizations, and scholarly material to help students and researchers contextualize Curtis's work. In their 2014 project reflection, Identity, Participation, and Responsibility in the Ethnic Archive, Warnemont and Kim clarified that their intent was not to reproduce Edward Curtis's work, nor to actually talk about Curtis himself. These endeavors were sufficiently covered by other Curtis-focused projects, including the collection at the Library of Congress. Instead, their work was to shift towards a collective effort, towards a different framing that is reflective of how recent considerations of Curtis's work shift the attention toward the subject's performance, as well as new ways of thinking about the images. They desired to, quote, reflect on the particular cultural and epistemological authority traditionally invested in the archive, and to explore the ways to unpack the construction of Curtis's visual ethnographic archive. So, even as they noted the problematic nature of Curtis's work and the textual accompaniments, the choice of the project to highlight its interface and its possibilities obscured the stereotypes that many of these images reproduced. While it's true that many Native peoples participated as volunteers in Curtis's efforts, many of the images themselves have become unmoored from their context of productions. A subsection, for example, of the Scalar Project, Public Domain and the Indigenous People's Rights, which is part of a larger chapter on contextualization of race, highlights the problematic nature of the archive. The fellow, undergraduate fellow, Amy Borsek notes that the US system of intellectual property which privileges individual ownership and secession of authorial rights is in conflict with indigenous people's cultural practices. And she writes extensively about this at length. This means that objects and such that are circulated, circulated outside of the community are removed from their context and removed from the community. 
She continues on to say, to infringe on the uses of indigenous property by culturally appropriating rituals, designs, songs, and photographs is an ethical violation of human rights, but it's not legally offensive. In writing this, what Borsak and her collaborators seem to differentiate between is the appropriation of indigenous property and the display of indigenous community. In part, this may be a result of their larger approach where they're quoting Dana Williams and Marissa Lopez. They argue that performing archive is a post-colonial project where, quote, the digital archive is a site of critique and interpretation, where an access is understood not by the terms of access to truth, but to the possibility of the past, present, and future performance. What marks this effort as problematic for us from an indigenous methodological and epistemological approach is that the performance of the archive that is recentered is not actually indigenous. It centers the project team as the authority to interpret the images. The performing team considers their own use of Curtis's images not as an ethical question for themselves, but instead as an opportunity to provide training to undergraduate students in how to collaborate. It's important to note that the Performing Archive team devoted an entire chapter to consulting with tribes. Uh, they did the project in three months and as such didn't have time to focus on collaboration. They were gonna come back to that later. And in their project reflection, they note that tribal consultation was a future opportunity that we could deal with later. And just recently in 2017, uh, Jackie Warnemont uh, sort of reconciles with this where they basically say, the project was something other than an essentializing access project. Performance helped us reorient away from thinking of the data that we were creating and aggregating as something upon which other forces would act, and towards the idea that data was already acting, crafting Indianness as near absence. This fundamental belief that data about Indianness acts as a near absence confirms indigenous studies scholars' concerns about native survivance. The communities documented by Curtis are not absent today, in fact. They have not disappeared. Rather, colonial processes have told us that they have disappeared or that they are near absent. These are not accurate representations. For us as scholars in Native American digital humanities, this is often the first aspect of educational correction. Native peoples are here and they're not going anywhere. They're not absent and they are not to be ignored. Instead, we're trained, to teach, we're trained to ignore them as a result of the colonial processes that have become the dominant Indian white relationship as researchers, right? So we expect when we write to a community and say, we wanna do a project with you, that like we're gonna get an answer in our own time frame as quickly as we want, and that we're not gonna have to do any of the hard work of building relationships. Or in some cases, we're gonna use open access data and then we can avoid talking to the community entirely and this way we can get our project done in the amount of time allotted. Rightly, Warnemont and others argued that the project ultimately reproduced systems of power and privilege. She wrote, it's a really excellent example of small and incremental difference on top of essentially the same repressive and violent structures. However, her ethnographic reflection is actually separate from the Curtis project. So you could go to the Curtis site and never know that they admitted the project was flawed. As Choctaw historian Devin Mahusa noted as early as 1993, intrusive research of American Indians and the publication of information that tribes do not wish disseminated to the general public constitute a major source of interracial conflict. Dissension between those who desire to keep their cultures sheltered from curious interlopers and those who cry academic freedom undermine the credibility of all scholarly studies. 
This is particularly problematic within the Native American studies context when the core materials of digital research are held by colonizing institutions and are considered open access and free for use. And here the SAA protocols are of course uh, instructive. Existing copyright legislation does not address issues of significance to the communities, and there's a full long list. Native American knowledge has been copyrighted by outsiders without appropriate permissions or approval. Recommending these considerations of the expansion of moral rights to protect indigenous materials is one step forward. But another step forward is to recognize other models of scholarship. So I'm going to give you guys three examples of great scholarship to look at. This is Indian Nation. This is a project of Claudio Sant, where he has a uh, wiki-type structure attached to his project where any member from the community can log in and add their own historical information and contextual information. And they're slowly plotting um, all of these different communities and different individuals who are sort of involved in this. Uh, it's a fabulous product, project. Um, Claudio works primarily in the southeastern uh, United States, but has sort of expanded this elsewhere. Uh, the Genoa Indian School Project, hopefully many of you are familiar with. Um, this is a project of um, restorative justice to recognize all of the children who made it through the industrial school. And they're doing incredible work um, partnering with uh, descendants of the children to make sure that the stories they're telling about the school reflect uh, family wishes, but also communal wishes. Uh, this is Carrie's project, Chaco Manifold. Uh, so what you're seeing up top, these are uh, oral videos of the histories of the particular places. And what's fabulous about this is part of the over, overarching epistemology of, of Native peoples is that you must be in the place to remember the history. So rather than saying, we're going to interview you in a coffee shop somewhere and have you tell us, they actually take the members of the community back to these places that are culturally significant and they record them talking about the place as place-based memory. Um, and we know through uh, scientific studies that place-based memory is actually one of the strongest forms of generational knowledge transfer, is so that when somebody else sees that place, they have that same sort of knowledge and memory. And so finally, I just want to say, as we consider sort of this question of difficult heritage, indigenous collection, and digital humanities, all is not lost. There's a lot of really brilliant scholars who are interrogating this and are thinking about this. But part of what the goal of this particular paper and this presentation is, is to say, treat indigenous data sensitively in the same way you would classified and restricted data. Do not assume that because something is out there for the public good, that it actually is public or is good. Um, and part of this is also just to say that the digital humanities likes to experiment a lot. And for indigenous communities, the use of the language of experimentation and discovery is really traumatic. It's really problematic to say, we're going to experiment with native data. That, that, that's like bringing back memories of experimentation on bodies and experimentation on communities and all of the horrible exper experiments of the progressive period where they were like, let us educate you by assimilation. And then we're surprised when it didn't work very well. So where we want to leave you with this, this piece is to say, these are just preliminary thoughts. And the only way this work is going to grow is for more people to be invested in the site studies of indigenous studies and ask the really hard questions about who are we doing digital history and digital humanities work for and why does it matter? Thank you. We have time for some questions and discussion. I want to thank you for your talk. That was really wonderful. Great. And, um, 
it brought up so much for me in thinking about sort of my own experiences with, with archives um, coming from UC Berkeley where the very collection of indigenous bodies like yeah. is within the school. Um, but it made me think of actually a different moment when you were talking about remixing archives because the Bancroft Library at Berkeley, which holds a huge collection of pictures of indigenous people and other sort of Americana, mm -hmm. um, the general, um, has a store on the website Zazzle um, mm -hmm. where you can get images from the Bancroft Library on mugs and in prints and on t-shirts, yeah. um, many of which include images of indigenous people and photographic images from communities. Um, so. I just found like the way in which you talked about open access and um, its interface with capitalism yeah. to be so poignant in sort of thinking about that moment of, of what archives do and also the interface between sort of our idea of science and the academy is for yeah. the common good but also enmeshed within capitalism. Well, and what's interesting is, so the native arts law that the United States has on the books is very specific about how you have to qualify as a native artist in order to sell authentic native goods. The issue is that that law assumes membership and citizenship in a federally recognized community, which is a very small percentage of the people in the United States who are indigenous or culturally connected. And so it's been a sort of interesting thing to watch, which is there's a tension between like the desire to claim authentic Indianness for the purposes of your community and then how that authentic Indianness becomes commercialized by other apparatuses around you. Um, I was just talking to a colleague who works in a, a trans US Canadian context about this and, and we were remarking that Canada's laws are much more restrictive and in fact the Canadian government will often step in and pull objects from the market because they violate uh, the Truth and Reconciliations Committee um, issues around uh, native sovereignty. The US government, like you could say native sovereignty and half of the US government would be like, what is that again? So I think that's an important thing is, is to t think about what a more restrictive or proactive approach to that would be. I think the other interesting thing is that oftentimes institutions get away with that because they look at that as something of the past and of the history and that no one would be interested. One of the interesting questions to pose to Bancroft is are the proceeds of those sales going back to the communities of origin of those images? I'm certain not, but you want to talk about an awkward conversation. If you're going to use my family to, to sell shit, it's, it's kind of like the native athlete, the NCAA athletes case in, in California. Like, if you're going to use my image to sell a billion dollar industry, I want my slice of the image. And I think that same, that same conversation could occur about native representation of history objects in particular. Other questions? Concerns? It's all new? Yeah, well, interfacing with capitalism actually reminded me of <coughs> your concern with um, collections as data. And um, I guess when that conversation with your colleague did, uh, how did they defend um, perhaps the uh, the usefulness or utility of collections of data, and how did how again did you push back on that? So I mean, I think I think some of the rhetoric around indigenous collections as data is about discovery, right? Is about the more computer because the majority of of interfacing on the internet is driven by computers anyway, and I think there is a sense that by making more data computationally accessible, the ability of others to get interested and engage with indigeneity uh, globally would grow. The problem with that is 
the baseline of collections as data is neutrality, that the computer is neutral, that users are neutral, that the, the results of uh, compu computational processes by someone are neutral, that like, like we put in the meaning afterwards, right? But we know that that's not really how that works. And I think particularly for minority communities with a history of trauma, you know, the notion that there's some sort of computer out there that we've programmed with all kinds of biases in it that then is going to do things like, you know, disaggregate heads from bodies. In, unless you understand the concerns of a community, that doesn't matter. And I think that's why having more subject specialists involved in the computational access and computation collections as data conversation is really needed. Because when we had the conversation in Santa Barbara for the first workshop, myself and Gabrielle Coleman and a couple of other people kept saying, like, like, you know, this is why we do artifacts one by one or objects one by one is that we know the way we interpret them is very important that we have the, the sort of contextual knowledge of that interpretation. You have to figure out how to program a computer to have that knowledge. And computers aren't sensitive. And I think that's one of the things that the collections as data team is really aware of and is really sensitive to. And we'll talk openly about that the model of collections as data that they're using does really have to grapple with what happens if we're exposing things and hurting things in the process. But the answer is no one's going to stop the collections as data train, right? Like no one's going to stop it and be like, let's address the ethical and epistemological issues first. Instead, it's we'll figure it out as we go. And I think that's oftentimes how digital development happens is we'll figure out the consequences of it in the process of doing it rather than having the hard conversation first. And I think the initial step for me is to say, is this collection actually something that should be exposed computationally? So if we're talking about lynching photos, should that collection ever be exposed to public use through a computer? And, and my answer is no. Well, then I would ask, if, as a follow-up, like, how do we determine the arbiters? How do we, like, Would you make that decision if you were all of a sudden in charge of that collection, say, the lynching collection? Would you make that decision on your own, or would you have like a, would you bring in stakeholders? Or how so would, did you the that? pattern of colon colonial archives is that I make the decision on my own, and then when I get yelled at about having made the decision on my own, then I'll create a community board of advisors who might help me navigate things. Um, in the indigenous context, you know, there are models of consultation that are growing where communities are being asked to review things beforehand, but that goes back to my point about, we treat that as free labor, we treat that as a community good, we don't actually create structures that pay for that. So I'm always amazed when I talk to people about like, you know, how are they building their project, they expect communities to review the project or to review the collection, but they don't pay people to do that. They don't bring them in and pay them and make it you know, tangible or apparent, and I think, that's part of it. I think the other thing too is that when you think about this notion of like who is the arbiter, there is no one size fits all. And I think this is one of the biggest issues as we train researchers is that if you're trained in a US academic concept, if you clear IRB, the Institutional Review Board you know, process, then you're good to go and like how you do your shit is your business. But that only works if you're working in a majority white environment with majority white subjects in a research-driven process that works on the timeline of your school with outputs that your school recognize. Well, for those of us who want to do community-based work, a community could give a shit about a 16-week semester or about the fact that you want to publish an article. That may not be what they need. And so um, a colleague of mine 
uh, has said repeatedly when we train researchers at my institution, her first job is to explain to people how to go in with a questioning heart rather than a determination of what they want to do and to go in and say, how can we help you? How can we work with you? Do you even want to work with us? Rather than going in and saying, we have an idea for a really great project. Give me a couple of hours of your time. And oh, by the way, I'm going to go get lots of press about it. So I think being generative and, and treating it as a generative exercise rather than an extractive ex exercise is a really key sort of change of mindset. Your comment about how difficult it was to submit feedback and then you can get a response to when we had questions around how data was curated and collected, et cetera. So can you talk a little bit about your own research process and the level of transparency or spaces that you've created for you know really candid feedback and then your approach to responding to them? Yeah, so I mean part of my approach is you now with every digital project I'm producing, there is a questions or problems button or page that is prominent on every single page of the site which doesn't just take you to like an email address. It's literally a live form where you can put in whatever you want. And, and I've gotten feedback from things about like, I'm confused about why you're doing this thing or what you've said here. That's really useful, making that a key part of, of my engagement strategy by moving that to the front of a site or in front of a project. Um, the other thing is explaining what the process is going to be if there is a conflict. I think that's one of the other things that is problematic in my own work because much of my material comes from colonial-centric archives. Um, and I write on, on College Sport, which if you ever want to see some really fun archival politics, write about mascots in, a, in, in college archives. It's, it's fabulous. Um, and I've been doing more and more work in those spaces. And the institution is sort of like, well, we don't have a problem with it. Why do you have a problem with it? And I think thinking through your own rhetorical strategies about why I'm bringing this to you, why I'm saying there's a problem, how can we follow a path together to find a solution is really key. And I think I've been informed in the last couple of years in particular by work on sort of like mediation and reparative justice politics and about like what are the strategies you can use of conflict mediation and how do you bring those to a research project. Um, particularly when you're doing community work. So like I've seen some shit go down where there's like people, like community people screaming at each other and it's like our project, like I, we need to have a strategy to deal with that. We don't want to harm the community in our work. And I think that's part of it is to be public about like when we have a conflict, here's how the conflict gets walked through and gets handled. And like if we can't come to consensus, then like the project has to stop and it's not going to go forward. And I think this is, a problem for a lot of us because so much of our work is driven by like getting the grant done, getting the project done, getting to the next stage of tenure, pushing, whatever. But this is what being an ethical researcher needs to look like in a digital space. And I think that's the thing I've learned the most from my indigenous colleagues is that just because I like linearity and like targeted goal setting <laughs> and products doesn't mean this is the appropriate environment for that. And I think that's the other thing, is developing an awareness of the environment that you're working in and knowing that sometimes you have to be the one to step out of the environment because your work is not productive for the people that are in it. That's a really big thing for me that's only now, I think, getting my attention the way it should have 15 years ago as a researcher, where I should have known better and, and I didn't. And I thought it was all about getting to the end point and probably did some real harm as a researcher in ways that I shouldn't have. Thank you for your talk. Um, 
I'm really interested in how a lot of publications use the words difficult heritage or difficult history or contested, yeah. blah, blah, blah. Um, so I always like to ask the question, what makes it difficult and to whom is it difficult to? And what are the implications for yeah. how all of those people think it's difficult or contested? Yeah. So um, our application to McDonald's com comment in particular, her work in particular on difficult cultural heritage is that most people would assume by reading the article that we've written that we think it's difficult because it's about indigenous people and there's like lots of issues operating in it or that it's difficult because like there is no simple answer for researchers in the community. And in fact, Carrie and I had a number of conversations in the process of working. This, this particular piece took us, I think 21 months from the first time we started working on it to when we presented it at different conferences and then finally published the article. And I actually think our application of difficult heritage is tied not to the data or to the researcher, but is actually tied to the complexity of the community. So a lot of people assume that if there is an indigenous community that there's like a single tribal authority and that there's like, you know, a tribal governance body and that everybody's in agreement about like what their history is and what their work is and that it, it's all supposed to be sort of very, like haven't you guys figured it out how you want people to work with you kind of way? And in our conversations, one of the things I think we both realized was that part of the reason why we use difficult heritage is that indigeneity is difficult, like for indigenous peoples. Like being indigenous is difficult right now because they, there are systems of oppression that are operating that people assume are like way past, and they're not. And so part of the reason why we use difficult heritage is that if you only use the word heritage, people assume sort of like it's of the past, it's, it's something we've inherited that is positivistic. Difficulty allows us a measure of flexibility to say, not only is this contextual, but it's potentially traumatic and harmful. And I think that's the distinction is, we actually think that, that data might be harmful in its existence, and not harmful to me as a researcher, harmful to the community that I'm supposedly working with. And we have to be sensitive to that. And difficulty gives us a way of using that definition and understanding the legal and ethical and epistemological reper repercussions of the work we're trying to do. I don't know if that answered your question well, but that's kind of where we're at at the moment. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> I mean, I think though, one of the things your question highlights for me is one of the challenges of doing this work is having a good vocabulary for it because we are trying to marry archival and information science with anthropological work, with community-based social justice, with history, with American, like, like it is one of the weirdest things about this work is that no one disciplinary language is sufficient to give us what we wanna do. And so when we did the first draft of this piece, um, this piece came out in the Journal of Cultural Analytics. Uh, Tanya Clement and Amelia Acker were the special issue editors. And we got back two wildly divergent sort of sets of responses from the readers, we sort of took a middle ground and then the editors came in and said like, in taking the middle ground, you've sort of tried to make everyone happy and we don't actually want that. Like we want, we want what seemed radical about the piece when you drafted it. And so we ended up really moving much of the piece sort of to the left of center of where it had been and, and being more direct about that intersectionality of things. But I think it highlighted for us that there's work to be done developing these languages that are attentive to the context of their development that don't just make it all sound like you're all up in high theory land. And I think that's one of the problems we have is like the communities we work with don't wanna be in high theory land. 
So us dropping down high theory is like not how it, like that's not the conversation. But we also don't want to assume that like theory is absent from the project because it's not at all. I think maybe that's where we'll leave it for today. Yeah, thanks for coming. Um, and I'm happy to, if you want to, there's obviously the articles up. Um, if you have questions, you're welcome to email me. I also, since I'm the one standing here, would like to plug, if you're interested in presenting on your own research and your own work, Digital Humanities 2020 is in Ottawa next year. The three thematics are First Nations, uh, Native American Indigenous Studies, Open Access, and Public Digital Humanities. And I am one of the co-program chairs. So we would love to see submissions from people in the room about their own research and their own teaching and how it intersects with digital humanities more generally. The deadline is October 15th. When is the conference? It is July 20th to 25th uh, because we have a bunch of workshops that surround the conference proper. So we'd love to have you. I'm trying to shill as much as possible and do my multiple hats. But thanks for coming. Thank you.